are those moments when preachers choose scriptures, and there are those moments when scripture chooses the preacher and the moment. This is such a day, I believe. We are following the Christian calendar during this season, and there are texts assigned for each Sunday. And the gospel lesson for today was that lesson that you heard from Matthew chapter 15. My grandmother raised chickens. The big chicken yard in the back of her house was a world unto itself. I like the biddies. As a lad, I was fascinated by those baby chicks that would be hatched out in the spring. I enjoyed watching them except for one thing. I was disturbed by their habit of turning against one of their own. The flock would descend upon a biddy that stood out. It might be a chick of a different color. It might be one with a disability. It might just be one that was smaller than the rest. Whatever the distinction, the others would descend upon it and peck it to death. My grandfather said it was just the way of chickens. My grandmother said that chickens didn't have enough sense not to be mean. In a week when differences over differences have dominated the news, I find myself wondering about us human beings. How smart are we? Do we have enough sense not to be mean-spirited, not to be bigoted? Or are we like small-brained birds that attack because of some primitive instinct to do away with those who are different? In the most repeated tweet in the history of that tweeter, Twitter medium, former President Obama quoted Nelson Mandela who said, no one is born hating another person. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or the, his background or religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. It is such a hopeful statement, isn't it? That despite our hate, we can be taught to love. And yet it contains an ominous truth. If it is true that love or hate can be learned, then is it not obvious that something like racism involves more than mere stupidity? Indeed, racism requires intelligence. Because racism is not simply prejudice, but it is prejudice in search of power. To be a full-blown racist, one must have the ability, must have enough smarts to put oneself in a position of social, political, or economic superiority over those of other races. So racism requires intelligence. Racism demands another kind of intelligence that is the ability to create an ideology of self-justification. When I see today's neo-Nazis, my first instinct is to think, what idiots! 
But then I am reminded that in the last century, Nazi hysteria swept over the most well-educated, one of the most cultured countries in the world. Racism always has its reasons, and the reason is always the belief in the inferiority of those of another race. In his last speech to the United States Senate before leaving to become the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis argued for the constitutionality of slavery. Citing the framers' original intent, he noted that the Constitution had a race bias. And he said this, When our Constitution was formed, the same idea was rendered more palpable. For there we find provision made for that very class of persons as property. They were not put upon the footing of equality with white men, not even upon that of paupers or convicts. But so far as representation was concerned, they were discriminated against as a lower class. Racism always has its reasons. Of course, in the case of those Africans who were first brought to the Americas, it was not racism so much that gave rise to slavery as it was slavery that gave rise to racism. Because you see, slavery was not first and foremost a political or a social institution, but an economic institution. Much has been written about the origins of slavery in European mercantilism, and that bitter fruit of that mercantilism, of that movement, took root most perniciously in the rice and cotton plantations of the American South. So that when push came to shove and the old South went to war with the United States, it went to war not to preserve racism, but to preserve the economic power of slave owners. Racism was a part of the ideological structure upon which slavery depended. And so here we are, all these years later, still struggling with that legacy. The good news is that we have come a long way. Thanks be to God for all of those courageous leaders who brought us this far. And yet we know that we are not finally fully free. The last two weeks have reminded us of that. We are not yet in the promised land of racial reconciliation. But today we are in the church. And because we are in the church, we are looking for, praying for a better way. And we look to Jesus for grace and for guidance as we try to wrestle with this most stubborn of sins. In today's gospel lesson, we find Jesus and his disciples on the horns of a a racial dilemma. She is a Canaanite woman, a Canaanite woman whose child is suffering Now, given the fact that Jesus and his disciples are Jews, the most notable thing about this woman is not that she is a mother whose child is suffering, but the fact that she is a Canaanite. 
You see, the Canaanites are the old adversaries of the Jews. This woman's ancestors would have been to Jesus and his disciples' ancestors as Native Americans were to many of our ancestors. They would have been to ancient Israelites what the Palestinians are today to the modern Israelis. The Canaanites, you see, were in the promised land before Israel arrived, and they had to be removed. And with what they perceived as God's help, the Israelites routed the Canaanites, but they never got rid of them completely. And so the Canaanites and their idolatrous religions continued to be a thorn in Israel's side. And this woman is a descendant of those people. She bears the great weight of being a part of the historical adversary of the Jews. And Jesus and his disciples are there. And she is truly a minority person. And Jesus is in a position of power over this woman. He has what she needs. She cannot get what she needs unless he chooses to give it to her. And as Sheila said in the children's sermon this morning, she is determined to get it. She shouts. She refuses to stay in her place. She keeps coming forward, clamoring for him to listen to her and to give her what she needs. The disciples are so put out by her, and they say to Jesus, send her away. He says, nothing Her needs, however legitimate, are less important to the disciples than those rules that govern relationships between Jews and Gentiles. It doesn't matter how desperate she is. In their mind, she has no business running up to to them in that way and acting in that way. And Jesus intervenes, but only to remind them of his mission He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She will not have it. She shouts all the more. She falls before him and begs, Lord, have mercy on me. She's not a Jew, but a Gentile. But repeatedly, she refers to Jesus as Lord. Jesus finally turns to her and and really puts her in her place. He says to her, it would not be right to give the children's food to the dogs. Now, interpreters have tried to soften this by pointing out that the word translated dogs could also be translated uh, puppy. But that does little to make this more palatable. To call a person's offspring a dog bears the same insult in that situation as it does in ours. And this is a hard place, sisters and brothers. I wonder if at this point these disciples just cringe. 
When I hear this, I cringe, don't you? We do not like the sound of this. This is not what we expect from Jesus. This makes us uncomfortable. If you really think about it, it it, it almost seems to qualify as racism. It is prejudice manifested with power. How are we to understand this? There are really only two ways to, uh, to understand it. Either Jesus is dismissing this woman as less than fully human, or he is pretending to dismiss her as less than fully human. If he is pretending that it is surely for the sake, it is surely for the sake of his disciples and for our sake that he is doing it. If, on the other hand, Jesus' divinity is mediated fully through his humanity, then maybe he is learning through this human experience the fullness of his heavenly Father's heart. I don't know how you see it. I don't know how I see it. I can't make up my mind. And Sheila reminded us this morning in the 820 service that we may never have an answer to this, and that's okay. I'm not sure it matters. The truth is we expect better of Jesus than this, don't we? But then I can't help but wonder what Jesus expects of us. Does he expect better of us? And then see what happens next. What happens next is that love conquers. This brave woman lays everything on the line. And she does it for the sake of her child. If you've ever had a sick child, you understand this. We parents will do anything for our children, won't we? She doesn't debate the facts with Jesus. She does not walk away in disgust over his seemingly disrespectful response. She does not object to the logic of his argument. Instead, she pushes through. She pushes pushes through to that most basic truth of her situation and of his situation. She says to him, Lord, Lord... Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You see, she has her own logic, and it is the logic of love. It is the logic of compassion. It is the truth of a mother loving her child more than life or reputation or proper behavior, or anything else. It is the truth of a human being reaching out to God. It is the truth of a human being reaching out to another human being and asking for help. Amidst the bedeviled complexities of this human affair, it is finally the truth of who God is. The spirit of this Canaanite woman reminds me of words I used to hear an old African-American preacher pray. He would say, Lord, before we ask you to meet our needs, we just want to remind you, sir, 
of who you are. We just want to remind you, sir, of who you are. The Canaanite woman was reminding Jesus, is reminding Jesus of who he is. And the switch happens. Jesus says to her, woman, not dog, but woman, woman, great is your faith. Not go away, you don't matter, but great is your faith. Did you know that that is the highest compliment that that God can ever give us? Great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. It is the only time in Scripture when someone gets the best of Jesus. And I say that in the best sense of the word. She gets the best of him. She calls it forth. All the others are brought up short. She prevails. She conquers. Her love conquers. She refuses to give up. The strangeness of this story, the uneasiness of it is altogether appropriate for that great chasm that lies at the heart of it. Racial differences are tough. And racial differences are so often a dividing wall of hostility. But on this day, in this story, the walls come tumbling down. The walls come down for the sake of a child. A little child, maybe, like Ann Roberts. The walls come tumbling down for the sake of a mother. The walls come tumbling down for the sake of a Savior. The walls come tumbling down for the sake of us all.